The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renasola.us. For the week of September 22nd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. This week, inside the complex history of ExxonMobil's approach to climate science. We will talk with an investigative reporter about a series she co-wrote on Exxon's two-faced climate stance. It is a very compelling story, and we'll get the inside scoop. After that, we'll discuss California's climate and clean energy bill passed earlier this month. Some are celebrating, some are lamenting the outcome. We'll explain why. Finally, we'll end with a look at some trends from Solar Power International, the large solar conference that Jigger and I attended last week in Anaheim, California. Uh, and speaking of which, Catherine, we, we missed you while we were off. We didn't have a show last week. Did you do anything special with the additional hour you gained? Right, yeah. Well, I had uh, my own battles to fight with Congress, so I, w- I was plenty busy. And what were those battles? Well, the House Energy Bill, uh, they were going to mark up and they pulled at the last minute because there were some provisions that a lot of people had some issue with. Uh, there's some good things in it, but there were also some poison pills. So we're trying to kind of clean it up a little bit. So you didn't gain your hour like a daylight savings time kind of way. You probably actually lost three hours if you watched the Republican debate, too. Did you yeah, watch well, <laughs> I watched it until the my eyelids slammed shut. I was on the West Coast watching it. So I was able to get through the entire thing, but I felt really bad for people on the East Coast. Uh, That's Kath- crazy, Stephen. I was in my hotel. I was partying at SPI. I wasn't in my hotel room. Well, I was writing a story. Party. It was on in the background. I had That's to file a story. No, I, I ended up getting out after that. Did you take a shot every time they said middle class, Jigger? No, no, no. I am, I am now off of like you know that kind of hard liquor at SPI, you can definitely get in trouble. I I just drink hillbilly piss, like Miller Lite or Coors Light or something that never gets you drunk. <laughs> well, Catherine's a partner with Thirty Eight North Solutions here in D.C., and that is Jigger Shah, who's in New York City. He's the president of Generate Capital. So you're 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 not uh, still drinking martinis or or Miller Lite and riding the free free rides at Disneyland then Jigger you're back home <laughs> I'm back in New York City with the uh with the Disneyland that is the UN General Assembly the Pope and uh the Clinton Global Initiative That's right I'm I'm staying up north in the city here in DC I'm not going downtown because of course the Pope is coming here tomorrow and it is already very crazy it was already crazy this weekend as they started shutting things down On a serious note let's talk about climate change, the, an issue that the Pope will be addressing this, uh, this week. Or more accurately, climate confusion. In our last episode, we examined Shell's push to drill offshore in the Arctic, even though the company, the world's biggest oil producer uh, by market cap, says it is fully committed to addressing climate change. Today, we discuss the climate legacy of the second biggest oil company, ExxonMobil. Over the last week, Inside Climate News published three articles in an ongoing series about Exxon's past research into climate change. 
In the mid-1970s, Exxon invested millions of dollars into sophisticated climate measurement and modeling and determined with virtually no uncertainty that greenhouse gas emissions would warm the planet to dangerous levels if left unchecked. But then something changed. In the mid-1980s and into the 90s, Exxon abandoned that research, again, some of the best in the world at the time, and started funding climate denial front groups. What happened? Neela Banerjee is here to tell us. Neela is a reporter with Inside Climate News and co-author of the new series on Exxon. She was formerly the energy and environment reporter for the LA Times Washington Bureau, and before that, she covered energy for the New York Times. Neela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. Fantastic series. So most people know Exxon as this oil behemoth that had protected its territory through spreading doubt about climate change, you know, throughout the 90s into the mid-2000s. So the Exxon you and your colleagues described from the 70s and early 80s is a very different company. Tell us about the extent of Exxon's research and why they actually started it in the first place. Well, you know, what we have pieces together or helps us piece together a lot of the picture. And we've also spoken to, um, to employees and, and from, from that time. And what we, what we came up with is a company that's very different from the one that people got to know from the nineties, basically Exxon, um, maybe because it's populated with scientists and engineers, um, awoke to the fact of, uh, fossil fuel emissions, leading to a warming of the planet farther down. They, they followed the science, and we determined that um, as early as 1977, one of their top scientists was telling their top executives, the management committee, about it. That was 1977. But the uh, amazing by, thing here is that they weren't yeah. even following the science. You show that they were leading the science. Well, so, uh, that was later when they started to do their own research. So, you know, at that time, they were, you know, I, from what I can gather, these were, there were individuals at Exxon who were personally just interested in the question of, of uh, fossil fuels. And people we spoke to also described, you know, a, a community of employees that may be different from what, um, what, you know, what we think is at an oil company, right? I mean, this was the rise of the EPA in the early 70s. And people I spoke to worked at Exxon in the 70s in Exxon Research and Engineering, where, you know, which was the hub of this research, said, you know, many of my coworkers were environmentalists. Somebody else we spoke to, you know, who was an executive at uh, Exxon Research and Engineering, ERE, um, said, you know, for every two people who uh, he said he said there were two people who accepted global warming for every one person who was skeptical of it. So that you know that really doesn't jibe with the company we got, came to know later. But it was you know it was there was a different mindset I think in the country, and I think the company reflected that. And so, they, so they became aware of it, and you needed people very high up to sign off on this research, especially because the first project they did was quite ambitious. Um, it didn't. It was. It was using one their their biggest super tanker, uh, one of the two, to um, to take samples of CO two in the oceans and the atmosphere as it as it plied its route from the Gulf of Mexico to uh, the Persian Gulf, and you know we also have have evidence of. You know, managers at ERE telling people on high at the senior vice president level about uh, the research and, and outside independent research on climate and keeping them apprised of it. So this was something that went from the rank and file all the way up to the boardroom, the, the awareness of an interest in climate change and, and in Exxon doing its own unique research into it. People often equate the uh, 
the funding of climate denial or climate confusion from these large fossil fuel companies to what the tobacco companies did when uh, we started seeing research about uh, the, the detrimental impacts of, of tobacco. Uh, and but but you say this is a little bit different because Exxon early on tried to grapple with this and treat it as a, a business opportunity potentially and they wanted to get out in front of it so that they could help lead the policy discussion. So much different from what we saw tobacco companies actually do. Right, right. So they didn't suppress it, right? It wasn't like their their ex, their researchers, you know, uh, came up with these findings and then the company went, oh, crap, you know, we can't have this in public. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They actually um, funded uh, forums um, the, on, on climate change. They partnered with universities, with the energy department. They published peer, in peer-reviewed journals. Um, they, you know, it, it, they wanted to be seen you know, they wanted to be seen as a constructive player. I mean, it, this wasn't driven by altruism. You know, their their business. They saw uh, that um, if emissions were dangerous to the planet, then at some time, at some point, there would be a regulatory response to it, and uh, and it would force fossil fuel companies to uh, to perhaps curtail their products. And so what they wanted to do was their way of of dealing with that threat to their business was to be constructive, was to have a seat at the table and to earn that seat by doing really good research. Um, But, you know, what's happened in the last 25 years, of course, has erased that memory. And so many of the people who are involved in it are dead now. So, you know, they're not around to talk about it. So, Neela, I think, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit more history with you on this because ExxonMobil basically ran Saudi Aramco until 1976. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then when they got out, so they were really, you know, kind of an arm of the government almost in many of those areas. I remember even in the late 70s, they were investors in solar projects, right? I mean, Absolutely. Mobile, yeah. You know. yeah. yeah, they were. So, so, so they were doing all sorts of stuff, right? And then, then after Reagan came into power and um, oil prices stabilized. Um, you found that they were shedding businesses a lot. There was this whole thing around we need to be focused on our core business. And then you know the CEO, you know Lawrence Rall, who basically made these decisions at Exxon, was also the you know CEO under the Exxon um, Valdez um, oil spill, and you know yeah. was really uh, beat up over that. It just it seems to me like this is a natural progression of the Exxon that we know today, which is uber focused on oil and everything oil and basically negative on anything that isn't oil. Um, I think it's, I, I think that's a very good point in homing in on the greater historical context of, of the country, of the oil markets. And one of the things, so for example, Exxon was already thinking about becoming a diversified energy company in the 70s even before the CO2 threat was brought to their executives' attention because of, of a couple of things. One was this um, conventional wisdom and research showing that oil was running out and, and would run out you know, far more quickly than, than you know, is actually occurring. So that was the first thing. But the second thing, too, was how shaken up our economy and the, uh, and the oil industry were by the Arab oil embargo. And um, one of the, it's, it's interesting, one of the vice presidents who was kept apprised of all of this uh, CO2 research was a man named George Percy. And George Percy was Exxon's point man with Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, in, in trying to 
make sure the embargo didn't occur, and, and it did. So I think he was very keenly aware of the volatility of oil supplies. So that informed this attitude at Exxon of being open to, um, to alternative fuels, whether it was solar, they had invested heavily in nuclear, they were um, finding ways to use less energy, they had actually built two prototype hybrid vehicles, and some of the technology that they developed is, is being used apparently in hybrid cars now. And, and, I, and you're right, you know, it, when, the, when the price of oil fell in, I guess it was in 1982, it, it gave, um, it, it made it really hard to hold on to some of those projects, but it also gave license to those people who thought that Exxon had strayed too far from its core businesses, gave them license to cut that kind of alternative energy research and focus just on oil and gas. So, so I guess where I'm headed with this is it seems to me like when you look at a company like Exxon, yes, they have done a lot of bad things and Greenpeace put out this whole Exxon Secrets website, you know, accounting for all the dollars that they spent and all the, you know, climate deniers that they spent. But ultimately, you know, Exxon, out of all of the oil companies, now that oil prices have plummeted again, um, have the highest return on equity, right? So they're actually the best oil company in the world. Um, and, you know, some of the other ones are so bad that, you know, Exxon may actually gobble them up. And so I wonder whether this is just par for the course, that like, the 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 biggest baddest utility companies are the best at being anti solar and renewables, and the biggest baddest oil companies are the best at being anti climate. Well, I mean, I, I think the problem is that that you know we don't really know, right? Because it's not like any any company, any oil company, actually made the transition to being um, you know a far more diversified energy company with a lot more in renewables and so on, um, which is the path that Exxon was on in the late 70s and early 80s. So, um, you know, and, and, and one can't point to, to the other companies like, say, Shell or BP's troubles and say, well, it's because, you know, you embrace climate change and renewables. And so, you know, so I think um, to say that Exxon is so profitable and is doing so well at the expense of, uh, it, because it, 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 um, it shedded its, you know, its alternative energy business, you know, um, I'm not sure there's a causal relationship there. That's, that's the first thing. And then, and then the second thing too, is that part of the reason fossil fuel use continues at this pace is because companies such as Exxon and others, the fossil fuel companies were very effective in blocking a regulatory response in the U.S. to climate change. So, um, so, you know, one could also ask if there's a relationship between how much money they've made. Of course, you know, they're a smart company. They do a lot of smart things on, on you know, on the sort of investor side. I, I get that. But, but broadly speaking, you know, um, you know is, is there a relationship between the fact that they um, that they've made a lot of money in oil and in oil and gas, and at the same time, they work very hard to protect their ability to uh, to produce oil and gas and for it to be burned. And Neela, what they've done is not just make investments in oil and gas on their own, not just try to lobby on their own, but 
fund other front groups millions and millions of dollars to create a narrative of uncertainty and to build on uncertainty that scientists always say that nothing is 100% certain. And that narrative was so strongly internalized in arguments that persist today and are almost impossible to break down. So they did a lot more than just decide on where their own investments would go. And you've uncovered a lot of that funding as well. Yeah. Well, how much is that? How much have they funded? Well, I mean, we actually did not uncover that. I mean, that was kind of a story that was that was there before. And that's that's probably, um, you know, I think Greenpeace, their figure that people have used. And I think they you know, it's it's pretty well supported with documentation is from 1998. They spent about twenty two million dollars and that includes their own lobbying. And Catherine, yeah, I've seen a 30 million number recently, or 30, 30 million. That was in the Christian Science Monitor late last week. I mean, Catherine, I mean, what, you're right in the sense that it's not so much about public opinion, right? It's about creating this infrastructure of um, think tanks and 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 uh, scientists who are who are you know the the go-to scientists for for uh, climate denial, who can provide fodder to those politicians who would stall or delay climate change uh, to the companies. Who would do that? So you know, you're basically creating um, this. You know, you're you know you're, you're building the factory that's going to give you the ammunition, and that's you know that's what they, along with others such as the Koch brothers and, and so on, did. Exxon would not talk to you, correct? Did they did they stonewall you after you approached them? And then and then also you know I'll I'll go to one of their spokesmen who was on the NPR show on the media. Uh, last week, I believe, and he said that they have an un- uninterrupted history on studying climate. He kept using that word uninterrupted um, and that the reporting was wrong. What do you say about their pushback? Well, Exxon actually initially uh, answered our questions. We, we sent them rather broad questions that went with the first part of the, with the first story in the series. And then and, and they were fine about that, uh, but but they didn't really, you know, they didn't really answer. They, they didn't really answer the questions. And what I mean by that is, is what you heard on on the media, and what's on their website, written by Kenneth Cohen, and the the responses we got are all of a piece, and they're they're a particular talking point. And that talking point is that they have invested in climate research, they've done serious research, their opinions have been within the scientific mainstream, and that we are, uh, we are wrong to say otherwise. Now, what we take issue with is, is a few things, right? Uh, first of all, we never said that they uh, ended their research. We said it was, it was curtailed. And we've spoken to people who worked for a long time at Exxon Research and Engineering where that research occurred. And they, can, and they will tell you that because of the massive layoffs by the mid 80s that research was curtailed so um so there's so exxon ascribes to us a narrative that we you know a point that we never made we we haven't said that they ended their research we said it was it was curtailed or reduced that's the first thing but what 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 exxon will not answer questions about is that switch that occurred in in 89 90 you know we asked them over and over again you did such good research your executives knew about this and yet, by 1989, you were a founding member of the Global Climate Coalition of fossil fuel companies that were working to stall Kyoto. Why is that? What explains that? And they just refused to engage on that. And so Exxon, you know, by the second round of questions, which were much more detailed and had to do with the, the, the more detailed stories we've been doing, um, they're, they're uh, top spokesman, a man named Richard Kyle, who, who'd been a journalist, uh, only will speak to me off the record, and his off the record comments are usually pretty insulting. 
and uh, and you know I can I would like to stay on the record with him and they and they said you know what we did was was inaccurate and they refused to answer any more questions and what we told them was um, the door's always open if you ever want to talk and frankly you know with with each story we will go back to them again even if it means they're just gonna you know um, if they're just gonna meet our our request with silence. Neela, how about the Department of Energy? Because the the DOE held them up as a paragon of responsibility. They did such a great job with all this. It it was a true national and international service in 1979. What happened to those folks at DOE who were following this? Were you able to reach any of them? Or how has DOE reacted to all of this? Well, we actually, that's an interesting point. We, uh, We went to DOE initially to find some documents um, but, uh, DOE, most of those people, well, all of them are retired. Uh, one of the people who was, who was, uh, a researcher at DOE at the time and working on this, uh, Michael McCracken, he is quoted in our story and he talks about, uh, he talks about this summit in today's story about climate modeling, but another, but a lot of the people are dead, you know, the, so the gentleman who, uh, started this program under Carter, his name was David Slade, he's deceased. Um, his successor under Reagan, Fred Kumanoff, is also dead. Um, the person at AAAS who, you know, convened a lot of the conferences for DOE uh, about this, David Burns, he's also dead. I mean, you have to remember this happened, you know, 40 years ago, right? So, and a lot of these people were probably already in their 30s and 40s then. Um, one gentleman is still around, and he, his name is Roger Dahlman, and he lives, you know, in suburban Maryland. We couldn't find a phone number for him, but I did have an email, and I tried and tried and tried and tried to get him to talk to me, and he never responded. So that's where we are. Why should people care about this? So when this story first broke, when the first story came out, uh, Michael Schellenberger of the Breakthrough Institute expressed some skepticism about the story and said, uh, why should we pay any attention to this if Greenpeace also released a report many months back sort of documenting this as well? How is your process different from like an advocacy group? Because people have known a little bit about the science. So what's different here? Um, I think what's different is that we have uh, tons of internal documents that um, we haven't seen anywhere else that show this. And I think that um, we didn't, you know... Uh, I think people look at our name inside climate news and they think somehow we are advocates and we're not, you know, I, I, my career started at the wall street journal, then I was at the New York times and then I was at the LA times. Right. My colleagues, you know, the old, the, their colleagues of mine at, uh, um, at inside climate who also, you know, come from very serious journalistic backgrounds and, uh, and, and, you know, and we're not, we don't want to be advocates. We want to be journalists and we want to be able to do the kind of journalism that the major papers used to do. So the way we approached this was that, um, we had, we were looking into early climate research and we had heard from Mike McCracken, in fact, that Exxon was involved in peer reviewed research in like 1983. And, and that's, that surprised us. And it was, it was, you know, it wasn't biased. It was good research. And from there, uh, you know, and and we couldn't find evidence of any other oil company doing it. So it's not like we homed in on Exxon. It's, it's that Exxon appeared on our radar. Um, and so, you know, so it's, it's that kind of sleuthing that occurs when you're an investigative journalist anywhere else that we engaged in too. So we, so we started talking to people. We tried to find people who were alive. We tried to, you know, um, 
talk, like, you know, talk to their, their kids or, uh, uh, you know, like with Henry Shaw in, in the second story, we talked to his children. We talked to, you know, we went to archives. I mean, it was a thoroughly sourced series of, of, of stories. And if you'll note, you know, Exxon in its comments has not taken issue with a single document, with a single point, with a single person, because they can't. You know, so it's it's not Greenpeace, um, and and I think and to get to your your the first part of your question, um, why is this important? Because I think what it shows is um, is the evolution of one of the biggest economic and and uh, if you will political forces on the energy front, and that is Exxon. You know, Exxon is a major force not just in markets but in the shaping of the narrative on climate change and to, 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 to understand that they had done terrific research um, in the 70s and 80s and then they abandoned it, I think is to face squarely an enormous opportunity that was lost. I mean, just think if, if Exxon had decided to, to remain a constructive player and to have very difficult discussions about a gradual transition uh, in our country away from fossil fuels. Um, just think about how things could be different now. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that your reporting was was really eye-opening and very valuable. Just, you know, I think just from a history perspective, just to understand where Exxon was and where they've become. But I do think it's a bit naive to believe that any of these players are going to be useful to the same extent that none of the automakers are particularly useful around moving us to alternative fuel vehicles or Arizona Public Service has been, you know, um, systematically undermining solar power since the 1980s and 90s, um, even though Arizona has the most to gain from it, right? So, uh, you know, I, I don't find it surprising what what you revealed in your your research, but I do appreciate the effort. I, I I thought that like I learned a lot from it. Well, I mean, what I found surprising, you know, was I think what like when we when we heard Exxon was doing this research, given what we knew about Exxon from the 1990s, we expected it to be you know, research along the lines of Willie Soon, right, somehow skewed to Exxon's favor, and it wasn't. You know, they, they knew what was going on, and, and so that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, when, when you have an 800-pound gorilla like Exxon, say, say they had taken a more constructive approach, but, you know, but others like the Koch brothers and Southern Company and, and, um, and the various other players who have, have um, you know, fought action on climate change took the course that they're on right now. I mean, I would, I would imagine, and, and you're right, maybe this is naive, but I would imagine that it would be much harder uh, for climate deniers, especially those in Congress and, and, you know, and who've been in the White House, to, um, to make the case that they have and to stonewall as they have, um, not, not just because of, of Exxon's uh, stature, but because of the money that Exxon put into these campaigns too. That's that's one thing. And then, you know, the other thing is that um, that Exxon understood the risks that CO2 um, posed to the company, and they didn't share that with their shareholders. And uh, and as we'll you'll see in part four, which you know I'm supposed to be working on right now, uh, they were making business decisions looking at CO2 risk. Back in the seven, back in the seventies and eighties. So, um, so it also brings up interesting questions about what Exxon should have been telling its shareholders, and I think that continues to be germane to this day. Neela Banerjee is a reporter with Inside Climate News. 
You can find the entire series on Exxon, or at least the series published so far, at InsideClimateNews.org. As Neela said, they are working on part four. And uh, how many parts will there be? Six so far. But, my, you know, after part four, I can exhale because I have other colleagues working on five and six. So, yeah, part wow. four will be about how their knowledge of CO2 affected their business decisions. Well, we will link to the entire series on our podcast page. Neela, thank you so much for being here. It was a great conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. It was, it was terrific. I appreciate it. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a Tier 1 solar manufacturer, but did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on costs through bundled offerings, you'll save on time, too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415-852-7421 or go to their website at renesola.us. Late in the night on Friday, September 11th, the California legislature passed Assembly Bill 350. The bill creates a 50% renewable electricity target by 2030 and seeks to cut building energy consumption in half by that date as well. One major piece of the bill, which would have mandated a 50% cut in petroleum use over the coming decades, was stripped by lawmakers after a forceful lobbying campaign from the oil industry eroded support in the final hour. Those who focused on the lobbying have taken a negative view of the bill. Others focused on the details describe it as another strong set of actions in California. So which is it? Uh, Jigger, you've expressed skepticism over SB 350. Why are you skeptical? No, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not skeptical. I I honestly think this was fantastic. I mean, a 50 percent, you know, mandate is fantastic. And it it actually starts to align everybody. There's definitely some nuances to this whole um, uh, this whole bill that I thought were curious, you know, so for instance, interesting nuances. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. So like DG really isn't counted in the 50%, which I thought was interesting. So I guess that means that we're going to exceed 50% from the electricity side. Um, you know, I, I did think that the politics around how they dropped the 50%, uh, fuel usage in the state, uh, mandate, um, was interesting. And I do think it speaks to the fact that even folks as, um, you know, dyed in the wool on these clean energy solutions as we are, uh, aren't really that confident that the technologies exist to reach that 50% reduction in fuel usage by 2030. Yeah, it's a um, level of confidence, but it's also some pretty heavy lobbying from the oil industry uh, on Democrats in low-income districts and making them very afraid of, of the vote. So, yeah. you know, Kevin DeLeon had a lot of pressure from fellow Democrats, and he realized he had to just scrap that part of the bill in order to get it passed. So I'm not, I I mean, definitely the confidence issue is important, but I think uh, the fear issue won the day here. Yeah. And then I think that the really big, innovative, extraordinary piece to this is really what happened on the energy efficiency side. So, and I think all of us know that energy efficiency for decades has really been um, moved forward via some sort of rebate scheme. And, you know, what this really is going to do is, and when you look at NRDC and turns comments um, on the bill, um, 
PG&E is immediately moving to a residential paper performance pilot, um, basically a megawatt hour type contract. Um, I think people are saying, look, if this stuff worked for solar and the performance-based incentive, this can work for energy efficiency. And I do think that this is going to create shockwaves throughout the entire country where people have been viewing their energy efficiency programs with SCORN and are going to look at these innovative models to figure out how to help energy efficiency do better in the future. I'm shocked that no one has really touched this. I'm actually working on a story myself and uh, Matt Golden, who is an industry professional and who has worked tirelessly on uh, metered energy efficiency and try to get the bring the efficiency industry into the 21st century, um, played an instrumental role in getting some of the language in this bill. And it's just, it's could make for a dramatic transformation of the efficiency market in California and potentially in states beyond. Um, so just some language here that I think is uh, good to, to note. It will authorize pay for performance programs that link incentives directly to measured energy savings. Energy efficiency savings and demand reduction reported for the purposes of achieving the targets shall be measured, taking into consideration the overall reduction in normalized metered electricity and natural gas consumption where these measurement techniques are feasible. So that means that energy efficiency will be read at the meter and you will be paying for performance. Uh, this is going to take some time to to implement, but it really is a potentially dramatic transformation for how we measure energy efficiency and therefore finance it. Yeah, I, you know, I think, and and it goes to that um, Freakonomics podcast that we listened to and talked about before, which was really around the fact that this baseline stuff is a huge problem. I mean, Matt Golden's work at EDF, right? Um, you know, was showing that like part of the reason why they were so f- off was because of the baseline. So a lot of the models were showing that you assume that many of this old housing stock has no insulation in it when it actually had um, R12 or R15 already. And then when you went to R25, you assumed much larger savings than were actually possible because you know the buildings already had some basic amount of insulation. So I think this moving to a pay-for-performance piece where you're actually calculating stuff at the meter um, is going to really allow a lot of the solar money to get into the efficiency money. The other thing is, though, I, I do think that Green Tech, re, uh, Green Tech Media Research Group is going to have to redo their numbers for 2017. I mean, I, I absolutely don't believe that we're going to have a, a dip anymore. Um, well, I never believed it, but I don't think that we're going to have a dip in solar uh, deployments. We'll see. I, I, don't, I haven't talked to them about our, our projections Certainly, I think they're, they're going to be reevaluating those. But I did see one number that we threw out there, and that was this climate bill alone will spur more than $8 billion in utility-scale solar projects. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I reached out to a friend of mine who does solar out there, and I said, do, what do you think of this? And she said, I'm 30 gigawatts of happy. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> she said, the world's seventh largest economy? Yeah, we can do this. Um, and the only the only part I would ask Jigger about here is like the net energy metering battle or sort of how, how is that going to be resolved? Because there's an end-of-the-year deadline for sort of NEM 2.0 with the CPUC, and it'll be interesting to see how that kind of shakes out. Well, the industry is all coalesced around uh, the minimum bill, I think, which is what you know Green Tech Media had put forward as a uh, as a compromise position, and I think the industry is all coalesced around that. I I certainly still believe that having the utility companies own the inverter is a far better way of solving this problem, so that the utilities have the ability to rate base some equipment, um, and then also get all of the advanced benefits out of 
the inverter, which they've all studied for years but haven't actually implemented. Yeah, Jesus, there's so much going on in California. It's hard to keep it keep it all straight. Let's dig into some of the details of the bill here. A lot of folks have focused on this oil industry lobbying to strip the provision that would cut gasoline use in half or petroleum consumption in half. But let's consider what's in here in total. Uh, obviously, they're the big ones, 50% renewable electricity by 2030, the doubling of building energy efficiency by them. But there are tons of other compelling pieces as well. There's this efficiency metering thing. There's the directive to the CPUC to streamline and promote electric vehicles. Utilities are now, uh, they, they must now provide multi-tenant building owners with whole building data because getting data from separate meters can be really costly and time-consuming. Um, there's this requirement that utilities start implementing integrated distributed energy resource plans that include not just renewables, but demand response, storage, etc. And I think that's a pretty important step for ensuring that this 50% target doesn't just pile in a bunch of renewables on the grid without clear planning. And then I was talking to Julian Foley of Grid Alternatives at Solar Power International, and she was saying that there is up around a billion dollars for low-income solar access over the coming years as well. So, you know, when you break it all down, I feel pretty positive about this legislation, more positive than the folks who've just focused on the oil lobby's influence. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think on the oil lobby's influence, um, you know, Governor Brown has a number of other ways to a- accomplish what he started on the 50% reduction yeah. in fuel use, right? So he's got the California Air Resources Board and he has other regulatory ways of getting there. So I don't think that that's off the table. Yeah, he can do executive orders or ballot initiatives. And I think he's going to, in the next session, go for it on that piece of it. In fact, the 350 was those were those three targets you know, the first, the 50% increase in efficiency, 50% increase in renewables and 50% reduction in oil. So it, technically it should just be SB 250, but um, I think he'll go for it <laughs> next time around. Well, speaking of California, let's finish up with a recap of Solar Power International, which took place in Anaheim, California last week. It is the second biggest solar conference in the world behind Intersolar Munich. There are around 15,000 people, I think, that go there each year, and it provides a a great cross-section of industry professionals. It also means lots of access to good information and the occasional booze-fueled rumor as well. Uh, Any interesting themes you picked up on this year, Jigger? Well, uh, the one thing I found out was that we had uh, 2,500 more people at this SPI than last year. Um, So so I think it was up to to like... I think they told me it was up to about 16,800 or something. So that's pretty good. Um, and I also think that um, um, I, I was a judge at the Startup Alley, so I got to see a lot of the startup companies, which was pretty amazing. Um, and I also was able to speak with the young professionals in solar. And that was really good to see too, is SIA really focused on helping folks um, who this was, they defined young as whether this was your first or second SPI. Um, and that was really great. I'm um, just seeing all the new people in our industry and, and the fact that they're so proud of like the fact that they can change the world in our industry. I mean, when I joined solar, my uncles were all like, why are you wasting your life on solar? You know, like these guys were all actually getting encouragement, you know, and, and turned down other offers to join our industry. So, yeah. so I got pretty inspired by the folks I met there. 
Yeah, I had heard just because I wasn't there, but I heard that it was the best yet. The content was great. The quality of conversation was good and the energy level was high. One thing that I had heard um, that I wanted to just confirm with you all was that the conversation was more holistic so that it's more solar integrated with other solutions than just strictly solar. Is that did you find that to be true? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were, so I was talking to a lot of, um, you know, my old friends who've been in the industry for 15 years, and we were absolutely plotting what we wanted to do next, right? So, I mean, I remember previous SPIs, we would be, you know, saying, well, you know, this is what the utility will allow us to do. Here's how much we think we can get. Now we're going into these state level conversations and dictating terms and saying, we're going to invest $100 million into this particular manufacturing plan in the state. What are we going to get for it? Also, people are talking about storage more, but it's really important to bring people down to reality. All these companies are trying to figure things out. And uh, there are a lot of new companies attempting to get into storage. I mean, I talked to Trina Solar, for example, about their desire to get into um, storage deployment with both their utility scale and, and smaller scale projects. Uh, of course, Panasonic during that week announced their intentions to compete with Tesla with a European storage package uh, that could potentially be blended together with solar systems. A lot of other folks wandering around uh, trying to get a handle on where the storage business is at, and it is still so limited. You're talking about very small pilot projects. Everyone is trying to ride the coattails of Tesla, but no one has quite figured out the business yet. And I, I yeah. really get that sense at SPI. Do you no. think they could learn a lot from the solar industry, though? Well, and I think they are. I mean, wh what they're doing is they're getting these pockets of money in each state to do pilot programs, and that's really where they are. And I think you know a lot of that comes out of the experience of the solar industry. The one thing that I found was that people were all completely and utterly shell-shocked by what was happening to Sun Edison's Yield Co. Um, and then the fact that you know, NRG and Nextera and pretty much everyone's Yilco was in the crapper uh, right now. And and that was fundamentally changing the conversation throughout the show because people were no longer saying, well, I'm going to develop all these assets and I'm going to sell it to a Yield Co. They were like, uh, and I'm going to sell it to, I don't actually know. Uh, and I'm going to have to find out who else is buying solar because I, for the last two years, thought I was just going to sell it to a Yield Co. Yeah. And of course, uh, that week, NRG issued an emergency call for investors and said it was going to make a big change to its business. And everyone was speculating about uh, what it was going to do and whether it was going to spin off its renewable energy business. And of course, as we heard on Friday, when we all got back from the conference, NRG is going to funnel all of its renewable energy investments into a green co, a separate public company, um, which will get, uh, I think, $150 million of runway for the next year? I can't remember the exact number. I think it was 125. 125. But I, but I have to say that I don't know that we formally made a bet here, but I called it. I don't remember this bet. Oh my lord. I have <laughs> I have I have told you guys time and time again that NRG Green could not could not compete for the CFO and COO's time within NRG. And that this this is absolutely the reason that they're spinning this out is because David Crane could not get the entire management team of NRG to back him on the green vision. So like, great, let's make it a separate division. Isn't that what happened in Germany, though, with RWE? It's exactly what happened in Germany. But I just think that all of us have these like foolish notions that, you know, that these things can live, you know, within one organism. And 
I think it's hard, you know. I just think that, like, you know, old habits die hard, and a lot of the old guard at NRG was saying, "Look, you know, we can buy cheap natural gas and cheap coal assets. Why are we continuing to bother with this stuff?" And David Crane was having a hard time, like, getting the mind share that he needed. Yeah, but I don't think that this is like what we saw with RWE in Germany. I mean, RWE's fossil fuel business was getting hit so hard, and NRG isn't taking the same hit. They're just Are you tr- kidding me? Have you not watched NRG stock? NRG stock is but, in the crapper. I Why? understand that. But because th- of renewable energy, according to them. Right. You're not hearing me. I'm saying that RWE's stock was in the crapper because of its fossil fuel business. NRG's was in the crapper because investors didn't know how to value its renewable energy business. So no, they're very no, different no. situations. I, I, I absolutely think NRG stock prices in the crapper because of their fossil fuel business. They Wait, that's not what you just tried, said, though. No, I, I agree, because they blamed the whole thing on renewables. So when NYLD failed, they were like, oh, it was an El Nino, and we underproduced wind by 6 to 8-10%, and that's why we missed. No, you missed because you like actually mismanaged your fleet. You know, I think that for whatever reason, you know, they thought it easy to sort of dump on the green part of their business and not on the rest of their business. And and, you know, now they're saying, well, we're going to have to isolate this into its own category so it doesn't affect the core business. But but no, it's their it's their fossil fuel business that's getting destroyed right now. But I th- I think that investors were just having a hard time sort of valuing the, the personalized power element of NRG's business. They invested in this, uh, you know, the, the, the mobile solar charging startup. They funneled a ton of money into uh, their home solar business with somewhat limited success. They've continually failed to miss their targets. They've reported to investors that they have spent way more than they thought they would need to on, on marketing. And so, you know, investors are looking at this and, and really not quite sure how to value it. So I, th- I, th- I don't think it's NRG throwing renewables under the bus. I think it's investors looking at it and saying, how do we separate this? And um, what exactly is your strategy? I don't strategy? know what it is that you're thinking. I mean, like literally their stock price is down 50% since the beginning of the year. Their stock price is down over 65% since uh, June of 2014 when they all launched their yield co. I mean, like... Uh, you know, I I absolutely think that all of the shareholders of NRG are telling them that, you know, it's the renewables that are dying. And I think you and I both know that it's their fossil fuel business that's dying. David Crane knows that, but he can't convince his investors of that. So he's isolating the cancer. I, I think I'm saying the exact same thing that you're saying. I think that the renewable energy portion of NRG's business could be highly valued, but investors are confused about how the conventional power business and the renewables business fit together. Well, one thing that's really telling is that NRG broke from the generators to support Order 745 appeal to the Supreme Court, which is on demand response and the things toward the edge of the grid, and they broke from the generators to support it. So then one more prediction. Do you think that NRG will ultimately sell off most of this green co business or will they keep it? Well, if it was me, I would sell off all of their fossil fuel businesses because they're the ones who are losing value like it's going out of style. And, you know, it's the green businesses that actually have the most growth ahead of it. So if you want to, if you're a shareholder of NRG, I think you'd want to own the renewables and you'd want to sell off the fossil and get whatever cash for it that you can right now. I just think that if you're an investor in NRG, I just think it'd be really hard for me to believe that you really want to take the risk on the fossil fuel part of your business for the next number of years. I think you'd want NRG to sell that part off 
and fixed, fixate on the renewable energy part of the business, which is growing like hotcakes. Well, this segment kind of turned into an NRG segment rather than an SPI segment, but it was uh, definitely top of mind for folks at the conference. Uh, there were a lot more topics that I wanted to get into, but I think we can call it at that. So let us tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, you're up first. Okay, so this morning, the Democratic leadership in the Senate, which is Senators Cantwell was the leader of this initiative, uh, Minority Leader Reid, the incoming, who they presume the incoming Minority leaders Schumer and Senator Wyden, who's chair of Senate Finance, um, released a Democratic climate bill or energy bill. And um, first, just for anybody, it, it disabuse you that this would ever, ever pass at all. This is a messaging bill. What it does is it signals support for President Obama's clean power plan. It kind of tees up the Pope's address on climate change. And it also helps them in the 2016 races to kind of gel all of their policy views. So they have some key goals of this energy bill. In total, it would save 34% greenhouse gases by 2025. So there's this big carbon savings goal. There's an energy efficiency resource standard, which would be 1% savings in 2017, ramping to 20% by 2030, kind of um, mimicking what, you know, something like 24 states have energy efficiency targets, and that's not dissimilar, but on a national level. They're clean energy tax credits, all those renewables tax credits would be extended to 2018. And then there would be flip over to a tech neutral credit that would allow innovation of all kinds to get tax credits. There'd be an advanced manufacturing and fuel efficient truck credit uh, or truck programs. And then there would be protections for distributed energy um, for consumer access to data, DG and energy storage. So this is this was a big initiative that was announced this morning. It's worth taking a look at. It won't pass, but it gives you a sense of kind of what the Democratic Party is going to be talking about relative to energy and climate. Is this just going to piss off Lisa Murkowski, though, who's been working to try to get a bipartisan energy bill in place? Well, I mean, Kent, Murkowski knows that Senator Cantwell had her own bill she was going to introduce as well. And Senator Cantwell worked with Murkowski very hard to try to make sure that they could cobble together something that was bipartisan. So I think Senator Murkowski knows this is just a different track. And I, I think that that's fine. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. Educate us. So my really good friend, uh, Sunil Paul, wrote uh, a great piece um, um, f- that that really was um, around uh, Uber and whether Uber would really, you know, kill the auto industry. And it just it, it just came together so nicely. And, and his whole rationale was that basically that all of this car sharing and all of this stuff is going to really allow millennials to never own a car, even though most of them don't own a car because they can't afford one, that they're not actually going to get to the point where they're going to want one because the amount of innovation in the car sharing space is just so high that that we're going to get there. And that Uber, I didn't really think about this, now has a market cap that's larger than General Motors. Um, And so I, I thought that was a really interesting piece. So for those of you who haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's a, it's a really compelling thought exercise. I would agree with that for the most part in urban environments, but you know, throughout the rest of the country where you have to have a car to get to a lot of places, I, I don't think that Uber is going to be creating a revolution anytime soon. So people listen to this podcast. They obviously love audio like me. I've been listening to radio my entire life. I've been listening to podcasts since uh, really since 2005 when podcasts became a thing. 
but I've never really listened to audiobooks. And I apologize because this is not an energy related topic. I just had to talk about it because I'm so excited about audiobooks. I uh, I picked up audiobooks recently and I have been, you know, I've listened to like four books in the last three weeks and I have always loved reading, but I've slacked because I can't find the time. And uh, if you're an extremely busy person, like I, I know you you are, and the three of us are, I highly recommend getting into audiobooks. I've read about Elon Musk. I've read about the, well, listened about the Essentials of Physics by Richard Feynman. I'm in the middle of a book on the Revolutionary War right now, and I'm doing all this while I'm walking the dog, doing my dishes, um, you know, going about my daily life, and just a little recommendation from my new life hack. Probably telling a bunch of you something that you already know, but for those of you who haven't gotten on the audiobook tip yet, you got to try it out. I'm, like, super passionate about it right now, and everyone around me is annoyed because I talk about it all the time. All right, that's a wrap. Sorry for that random something you may not know. Um, the Energy Gang is sponsored by Renesola Americas. All the company's products, including solar panels and LEDs, can be found at renesola.us. All our episodes can be found at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, and of course at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Thank you so much to the listeners who've left us reviews on iTunes. You are fantastic, and you do help us find new listeners. It really does help. To contact us, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com, and we're happy to field your questions, your comments, and your story ideas. And uh, we'll sign off now. We are off once again next week because I will be away on a Green Tech Media staff retreat, and I think we had some other scheduling issues. So, Catherine, enjoy another week off, and we will uh, catch you after that. It sounds like you're going to be traveling a lot as well. Yeah, between now and next week, I'll be in California, Texas, and New York. Well, safe travels. Uh, Jigger, you have a great week as well. We'll talk to you Thanks. soon. Enjoy the uh, crowds with the Pope there. <laughs> I'll do the same tomorrow. I'll, I'll look out for the for the Pope. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.